The following conversation on flooding and emergency management is a presentation of the Cowlitz Podcast Network and the Cowlitz County Emergency Management. You'll hear from Larry Hembury and Joseph Gavednik next as they talk about the flood of 1996 with Bob Gregory. Taking care of your mental health is just as important as your physical health. At Columbia Wellness, we offer behavior health care for all ages. From telehealth counseling to inpatient addiction care, we offer the level of support your mind needs. Don't wait to enjoy life again. Give us a call at 360-423-0203. At Columbia Wellness, your wellness is our passion. I'm very uh, honored to have with us today uh, Bob Gregory, uh, who during the 1995 flooding event was the public works director for the city of Kelso. Um, Bob later went on to be the public works director for the city of Longview and the city manager. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So, Bob, uh, you know, I've been trying to explain to Joseph a lot of what we experienced, and and you and I were kind of in the opposite ends. You were out in the trenches, and and I was, uh, although with the fire department, mostly in the emergency management um, role at that time, um, what do you remember? I mean, just overall, what was your overall, before we get into some specifics of what you saw, impression of that 1995 flooding event? Well, it was uh, um, you know, one of the largest uh, flooding events that I in, in, in my history in the area that we experienced there. And I, um, you know, the uh, entire Columbia River watershed was, uh, was full. Uh, I mean, the whole watershed was experiencing the rainfall event. And then uh, uh, the Calus River watershed, which, you know, Longview and Kelso were really impacted by, was... Uh, uh, directly affected then by the Columbia River, and, uh, and when, as the Columbia River ebbs and flows, uh, uh, so so does the Calus River, and so we were we were just inundated, you know. And then all the uh, you couple that then with all the tributaries uh, that go along those uh, two watersheds, particularly the Calus River watershed, uh, it creates uh, significant localized flooding uh, flooding events that we all experience here. But uh, uh, everybody in the and, you know, and I think this is a statewide event, as I recall. I don't think it was really germane just to lower Columbia area there. But uh, so every agency, uh, county, city, everybody was uh, diking districts. Everybody was scrambling and uh, and uh, working together to, to uh, respond to those things. But it was uh, it was uh, uh, nothing. I, I have never experienced anything since that time uh, quite quite like that one as we had back in uh, 95, 96. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, uh, you had, uh, um, you know, kind of like uh, this thing we've just been through with this pandemic, you know, that once-in-a-lifetime experience, uh, as you and, if I remember correctly, Dave Lefebvre uh, were on the dike in Kelso? Yeah, yeah, we that was uh, that was quite a day. That was um, actually the first uh, major event we had that day. Uh, I, I um, and maybe some a little more background. I prior to me being at Kelso, I was the uh, county um, diking engineer. So I, I worked with the South Kelso uh, diking district, the North Kelso diking district, Lexington flood control district. So I was pretty familiar with uh, the levee and uh, drainage systems uh, uh, from the diking district standpoint. And then and then uh, with Kelso, then we had to, at that time my responsibilities had primarily to do with the uh, uh, Kelso storm drain draining system and that, but we worked uh, very closely with the Diking district. So anyway, when that day started, we, 
Um, you know, we're, we're continually, uh, we do what we call dike patrols or, and so we have people, uh, monitoring, uh, walking up and down the dikes and then looking, uh, looking at water levels and, uh, and then what we call boils, uh, maybe leaks, leaks that are coming through the dikes there. And the first thing that happened earlier in the afternoon was that we, uh, I got out by uh, Brook Hall Mobile Home Park there fall. And, uh, and that's when I noticed that, uh, the Cowiman River had really backed up because the Cowles River was high, the Columbia River was high, obviously, and uh, and so we were. I mean, uh, and, and my recollection is we were probably within a couple feet of the top of the Cowiman River levee system out there by Brook Hollow, which is you know you typically like to have uh, three feet of freeboard on there is, is kind of what the design elevations were, but we just uh, it was just an, an extraordinary event, and and so the first thing that happened that day was we were. Uh, we had to mobilize and actually raise the levee. And we literally had dump trucks, uh, uh, every dump truck we could find a private dump truck out there with St. Samajero. We actually literally raised the, the uh, levee along the Calis river, uh, or excuse me, along the Calumet river, um, throughout the day. Um, and, uh, well into the night. And I want to say we probably tried to add, uh, anywhere from six inches to a foot of elevation, uh, on top of that thing. And, uh, which it's, you know, it's a very difficult thing to do, uh, obviously because you got trucks you're, you're raising and, and having trucks run over the top of that, uh, material and trying to compact it and that. So, uh, so that was the first, uh, thing that we did, uh, uh as I recall that event. Uh, and then later that evening, uh, Again, during uh, during our dike patrols and that, we we started noticing uh, what we call boiling. It's actually water that's starting to seep through the levee system, levees themselves. There, we had we had several of those locations. Uh, one was down by a, a pump station in South Kelso, uh, and then uh, uh, and then the uh, other one was um, uh, right uh, near the underpass of I five uh, behind the uh, Three Rivers Mall, and. Uh, and that was a we we had a significant boil going on there, uh, quite a bit of water, and and so how you combat those is you uh, you actually try and circle those uh, things with sandbags or embankment material, whatever you can there, so it will um, catch that water and actually stabilize the water levels uh, on the that's on the outside of the dike there, and it actually uh, slows down the boil, it prevents the boil and, and seepage from actually running through and and actually creating a a hole or a, a breach of the dike system there. So, but the one behind the mall was a significant one. And we actually, uh, again, Dave Lefebvre, uh, uh, was working very closely with us. Uh, he was fire chief, fire chief at, uh, uh, Calus two at the time. Uh, we, uh, actually mobilized trucks again, and we actually came in and built, uh, and uh, basically a backup levee system uh, that was uh, uh, right there by that uh, underpass, I-5 underpass uh, uh, behind the Fevers Mall and actually raised that up there so we could uh, have a backup uh, levee system right there location in case we did have a breach. And and we were, we were really, you know, protecting the boil again there and stabilizing the boil at that area. And it was, uh, it was a pretty hairy event there. We, uh, it also required us to actually do a, a evacuation of South Kelso, uh, area and that area there. And, uh, and again, Dave uh, was instrumental in emergency management too, at the time to, to actually uh, mobilize and get some, uh, evacuations going down there in the event that we did have a breach. Cause uh, it would, uh, put a lot of water in South Kelso. <laughs> yeah. And if I remember right, uh, now city manager Kelso city manager Andy Hamilton he was he was a patrol uh, officer with Kelso police department at that time and and uh, he and uh, I believe Sheriff Thurman were involved with that evacuation and and they tell stories of uh, how this 
um, was no no minor task um, and uh, gives us a great example of if you are asked to leave because emergency responders have determined that you are in imminent danger, it's not a minor thing. No, it's not. And, you know, and, 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 you know, Kelso, the, the size of the South Kelso area down there is a uh, pretty significant. I, I wouldn't, I would guess we have, uh, you probably know better than I do, Larry, but you know, four or 5,000 people living in that area uh, in the South Kelso area there. Uh, and that might be a little hot on the high end, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of area that we're, we're asking people to, to get out of their homes there uh, like that. And so, yeah, it's not, and, and again, that's where everybody works together and that's where law enforcement and emergency services, uh, uh, fire and everybody, uh, you know, assist us while the public works guys are out there trying to deal with the physical structural things out there of the systems out there. We need uh, the assistance of everybody else to help us, uh, uh, do that. And it's, uh, we really work close together to communicate about, you know, how bad the emergency is, what the potentials are and, and do we, or do we not evacuate? And then, and I think at the end of the day, we, you know, in abundance of caution, we said, we're going to evacuate because we want to get people, uh, people out of the, out of the out harm's way in the event that we did have a major breach of the levy system. And, and you did that because of, you know, it wasn't just a, uh, fly by your seat of your pants decision. This was, this was thoroughly thought out at the scene and then communicated up the chain, right, to the political bodies that, at the time that that ultimately had to make that decision. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, um, you know, they typically the uh, the city councils uh, or the county commissions will, uh, you know, make, make the emergency declaration. Uh, they are then uh, on standby and, and waiting for various uh Field field uh, observations and situations that come up there, and and we certainly, uh, uh, you know, there are some delegations of authority as far as who, who can make those decisions. But we we always communicate very closely with elected officials uh, in, the, in those situations to advise them of of what the situations are and, and that. And then uh, you know, uh, typically, typically my experience is we collectively uh, uh, make a, make a decision uh, of what we feel is in the best interest of the public and in, in those particular instances. Yeah, and this was uh, fortunate uh, for us that this was an inform and act type uh, situation where we informed uh, the elected officials and and once approval was reached, uh, we were able to then evacuate where in some cases, like in wildfire type situations or hazardous materials situations, sometimes we have to act and then inform. Um, yeah. And so, but even though uh, I know... The picture that was painted for us in the emergency management world and uh, the pictures that were given to us, what a heroic effort that you and, and everybody out there on the, uh, the dike, um, all of the private contractors, all of the individuals that were helping run equipment, and I mean, truly uh, an incredible effort, um, which is an example of how we as a society tend to step up when... Things really need to get done. Yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and we, uh, unfortunately, we, 
you know, when you, you never completely plan and figure out or and can anticipate everything that's going to happen, but, you know, with some of the planning efforts at, uh, uh, through emergency management and, and all the various emergency services and public works departments and everybody that might be involved in, a, in an emergency like that, uh, you know, some good planning, at least you, you know where those resources are and uh, in the event you're going to need those, you don't know where you're going to need them necessarily or exactly how you're going to need them, but just being having a little bit of planning ahead of time there, knowing how those things are going to anticipate, uh, you know, just helps us, you know, execute and, and mobilize those things uh, and when those situations happen. And so, uh, uh, but, it, you know, not, it's not any one person can do that. I mean, you know, we have the, the engineering folks and the emergency responder folks there and everybody has expertise they bring to the table and you sit down and talk through the, pros and cons with the with the best information you have and the expertise you have there and, and you make those decisions but it's not done in a vacuum or by any one person and, uh, and it takes a you know a, the old coin it takes a village to to make these things happen and execute them and that's uh, exactly how that that day unfolded bob i have a question regarding the um the you know the orders issued to evacuate was there a a rallying point or a, a an area where people were to um, gather for the evacuation or, or did they go to with family and friends? And what about people who had uh, maybe mobility issues? Were there any logistical uh, complexities that um, aren't necessarily thought of or well, they're thought about, but you know, whenever there's a disaster, these things always kind of boil to the surface. Were there any uh, unforeseen or foreseen com- uh, complications in the evacuation? Boy, that, you know, I'm, uh, I wasn't direct, you know, they, again, emergency services and, and police and fire really, uh, handled the evacuations. I recall, I mean, obviously you're going to get to the higher ground and that type of thing, uh, um, and that, and, uh, I think, uh, I, I don't recall where our actual evacuation points were. Larry might even recall that, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, in some cases, uh, we have, we have mobilized, uh, uh, buses, uh, either the city transit buses or, or, um, uh, you know, ambulances if necessary for maybe people have ambulatory issues, but, uh, t- typically all those kind of transportation resources that you have available are, again, are part of the plan and we will mobilize those. But that particular event, you know, I'm just, I'm, I, I don't recall that I was so busy in the field there. I, I really wasn't involved with, with the logistics of, of how they did that. And I can't even tell you where the rallying points were, um, at that point in time. Uh, and Larry, Larry might recall that, but I, I, I just don't have that answer. Yeah, Bob, I, I don't actually on that, but I was thinking as you were talking here, you know, you were doing what was considered the most good for the most people. I mean, you know, there were, you know, four to 5,000 people possibly that would be in fact, uh, affected by the, uh, the, what was going on with that dike. And so were the majority of your crew, right? And so what else did you hear about later that was going on out in the, in the rest of the world besides the dike? Um, well, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, the county has, uh, I know up in the Lexington and uh, Ostrander, or, uh, Ostrander Creek area and up there, I, uh, um, Leckler Creek and all the watersheds up north there. I know they were scrambling like crazy uh, dealing with, with those. I, I don't recall, I, I believe that the Longview levee system had a few minor um, boilings going on and the Longview Dyke District was handling those as well. Um, I, I don't, um, I, I don't, don't believe that particular flood event. I think all of our 
drainage systems, our pumping stations and that as far as being able to get the water out of the ditch systems and over the levees to the best of our ability. I think all of that was working well. But again, you know, you always get the block culverts and, and uh, you know, some of those uh, more rural areas there where people get isolated, you got water over the roadway. I know the emergency services for the county and the public works departments were running around crazy um, trying to deal with that. Um, I can't remember. I don't know that Kalama had the downtown issues that they sometimes have with, with those events and, and Woodland area. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of standing water and that, but I, I believe all their levy, you know, Woodland actually has levy systems down there. And I don't recall uh, that we had uh, any, any levy uh, breaches or those, or boiling or those type of things going on in, in those part of the County, but a lot of, a lot of standing water and localized flooding that, you know, you just got to, uh, while it's an inconvenience in some cases, I call it an inconvenience, you know, it wasn't causing, you know, risk to uh, limit life and, and property and in uh, some of those other areas. And uh, I guess for that standpoint, maybe we were fortunate we really had the, the major issue going on in Kelso and not uh, other levee systems because we have a lot of levee, a lot of areas protected by levees in Calus County. All right. Well, Bob, do you anything else that you want to, you know, throw out, share with us today? Because this is fascinating to me to recall all this event. Yeah. Well, no, it's. uh, um, I guess that's what you know. It's it's fun to talk about it now. There, I'm surprising. I I guess it was uh, such a big event in my mind. It's something that I still remember a lot of the details and that is interesting that, that I still do, but, uh, no, I, I you know, I, I just think it again, I, I would just emphasize that, uh, that that's, uh, that's why you have emerging management. That's why you have planning exercises. That's why you, uh, try and be prepared for these things. And like I say, you never, you never know where it's going to happen or the, how significant it's going to be there, but, but doing a lot of that work up front there, uh, certainly, uh, is helps you uh, be in a better position to respond, uh, respond to emergencies and and uh, i've always appreciated the collaboration and partnerships that we've we've had with uh, the county emergency management all the police and law enforcement um, emergency services folks there uh, i've always appreciated and that's always been a an important uh, element to, to me and in all my roles with local government to make sure that we uh, can do the best we can we you know you can't nothing's ever perfect and, and, and things do happen. Uh, it's just, it's just the uh, nature of the event there, but you, you plan and do the best you can. And in this particular instance, we were uh, very fortunate that while well, we had to evacuate, uh, luckily the, we were able to stabilize the breaching or the boiling and all that. And we didn't uh, have any major uh, life and property issues uh, happen with that. But uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, we, none, nonetheless, we went ahead and, uh, did that evacuation and uh, some people thought it was an overreaction, but uh, I would rather overreact and, uh, and rather than have something happen and then be criticized for uh, not doing that kind of thing. So that's, those are always the decisions that you have to make in, in those type of events. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time and uh, stay safe out there and um, uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. That was Bob Gregory, former Public Works Director for the cities of Kelso, Longview, and Longview City Manager. Wow, Joseph, I mean, you know, I, listening to him, just my juices just start flowing, you know, because it's like uh, I remember that time, and, and uh, we had just started a high school fire science program, and and a lot of those kids in the, in the class uh, uh, were volunteers um, 
new to you know the state of Washington. This this program was relatively new, and and these guys uh, they learned how to sandbag from a lady named Sandy from Kelso Public Works, um, and they went out and they they sandbagged several pumping stations to help protect them and. Um, and I remember seeing the news crews come in, and I saw all of the the public that was out doing sandbagging, helping others that needed help, and uh, companies, you know, coming in and, and offering to, to do what they could. But with all of that, um, it reminds me about getting prepared. Absolutely. And that's the theme I also saw too when I was going through the archives is volunteerism was really high. Uh, everybody was pitching in and helping their neighbors out, helping each other out, loading up the sandbags and and everybody doing their part. And it's really amazing to see that happen when whenever there's some kind of a catastrophe or disaster that everybody does work together and, and help each other. But um, back to the point here, as far as what can we do within our own um, power, within our own homes to be prepared as best as we can for these types of circumstances? What kind of supplies should we have on hand, uh, training, uh, you know, materials to not only just help ourselves and be self-sufficient, but we might be able to help a neighbor as well? Yeah, you know, and and this is one of the things that my role is the outreach coordinator with Calais County Emergency Management, I have the privilege of going out speaking to, to individual groups or, or uh, homes or whatever the case may be to talk about this. And, and one of the things that I tell people is, you tell me what the next emergency is going to be. What's the next disaster? What's the next catastrophic event? And when is it going to happen? Is it going to happen in November or is it going to happen in January? Is it going to be at 8 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock at night? It's so broad that sometimes that scares people, that intimidates people. So what I really like people to think about is, you know, the old adage of having a 72-hour preparedness kit and things that are involved with that. You know, we've talked here recently um, and as a matter of fact, this morning we've talked about having a flashlight and making sure the batteries work. And when you change your smoke detector batteries, why don't you just go ahead and change your flashlight batteries while you're at it and, and making sure that works? Because one of our greatest fears as people is dark. And, uh, and we see a lot of power outages uh, during this time of, of year when we're talking about the flooding events. And keep those supplies where you need them most. For example... Uh, we have a basement and there's a, a sump in the sump pump. And if we have a failure, it's probably going to happen when there's no power. It's going to be dark, middle of the night. We keep a flashlight with fresh batteries right in the stairwell, right at the top of the staircase. So all I have to do is open the door and at least boots and flashlight are right there if I need to go down there. I don't have to go looking in a kitchen drawer. We all have that kitchen drawer that has sort of everything kind of falls into it, batteries and pens and things like that. Well, um, you need to keep those supplies just right within easy reach. Um, near doorways is a great way to put them. You can just even put them on the ground right behind the doorway. You just know that just reach right there where you might keep your umbrella, put that flashlight there, have them spaced throughout the house. Yeah, and, and we're, we evolved from 16 hours of daylight to 16 hours of darkness. And so we're basically dark two-thirds of our, our, of our days now. And uh, so that's really, like I say, light is really important. 
Uh, there's a lot of other things uh, that we've talked about. Uh, you mentioned uh, having a good shovel. I mean, a shovel is a is a simple tool, but can be used for so many different things, um, especially as we talk about flooding, you know, diverting water, using it to build a little uh, dike across your driveway, um, things of that nature. Um, you know, in sandbags, uh, everybody just thinks that they can go to a public workshop and pick up sandbags, and that's not the case. Um, the only time that's, you know, Public Works is able to give out under certain circumstances sandbags, but other than that, you have to purchase your own sandbags. And where do you do that? Well, you need to check your hardware stores, your your warehouses, building supply companies, uh, concrete supply, things of that nature that that might have sandbags, and, and I definitely recommend buying them ahead of time. Now, the thing about sandbags typically is uh, they've been burlap in the past, and we know burlap rots over time in a moist environment, and guess what? <laughs> we live in a moist environment here in, in Washington State and Cowlitz County. It's a good idea to stock up. Also, uh, you know, like you say, you can't predict when the next event is going to happen. We're all probably going to get, you and I are probably going to have another fender bender or a car accident at some point in the future, but they're called car accidents because it's an accident. We don't schedule them. We don't schedule these disasters with uh, nature or weather, but um, and and that's actually the the worst time to go try to get to the store because you might not be able to get to the store. You may be blocked off. Uh, so plan. Um, you know, think of a think of a squirrel. How they squirrel away all their nuts in the trees in the summertime and in the early fall because then they're prepared for the winter. But if they don't think about that. Uh, you're just not prepared. You're going to be a sitting duck, and you don't want to be one of those people that you see running to a, a, a supermarket or a big box store with everybody else trying to get there, and the shelves are already bare. And we've seen bare shelves already with other events in the recent history here. Yeah, and, and you mentioned driving. Um, it's, it's so critical in these types of events. Um, uh, we get, you know, heavy rain. Uh, you know, have you changed out your windshield wipers lately? Do you are you sure that you have windshield washer fluid? Um, slow down when you're driving. I mean, uh, leave earlier to get to places that you normally, you know, take you five ten minutes. Allow fifteen. Um, if you've got an hour commute, you know, allow allow an hour and fifteen or something. But slow down. And and the big thing is. Um, following distance. Increase that following distance because I don't care how good your brakes on your car are. I don't care how good your tires are. I don't good, you know, your, your reflexes are, might be amazing. But when you are in a hydroplane, until you have experienced an actual hydroplane, you don't understand the dynamics of going through a hydroplane. It's a terrifying experience. I've I've been there before where I hydroplaned and I spun around a couple times on Highway 5. Uh, surprised I walked away from it. And I was I was heading northbound in Northern California and in, uh, outside of Weed, California. By the time I was done spinning, I was facing southbound on the shoulder of the southbound traffic. And fortunately, there was no barrier between the two uh, north and south lanes. But it, it, it woke me up quite a bit. And again... It happens very fast, yeah. and it's a, a terrifying experience. Another thing with automobiles is at this time of year, 
get your batteries checked, get your car serviced because uh, the, the weather's very cold and you just want to make sure your vehicle is operating properly when we're experiencing uh, more extreme weather conditions. And uh, keep a little bit of extra gas in your car. Don't run it down to empty, even though there's a gas station just down the street. There's a saying when you go boating, you have one-third of fuel to get out where you're going, one-third to get back, and one-third for contingency and emergency. And uh, you might not need to keep a third, but at least keep a, at least a quarter tank in your car so you can uh, get out and about if you have to, if, if the gas stations aren't operating. Yeah, and that's a great point because you lose power and you might lose that ability to get the gas. So, um, but so you run out of gas or you have an accident or, you know, you, you end up off of the road or, or conditions just don't allow you to uh, get home or get to work or wherever you're going. So what do you do? You know, and, and you spoke um, a lot about this in the past, about having a 72-hour kit in your car. That's correct. Yeah. Keep a backpack as a 72 hour kit. It's in your car. You can also throw it on your back and be more mobile if your car is not um, operational or can't get to where, you know, because of road blockages. Uh, It doesn't take too much to put one together. And uh, it's uh, just a, it's just insurance. Basically, you're not really wasting any money on it. A lot of the supplies you can rotate the stock. If you uh, check your your pack every six months or a year, at least at the minimum a year, uh, to verify that everything in there is still up to date. But uh, you you have fire insurance, you have auto insurance, you have health insurance. Uh, this is uh, survival insurance in a way. Yeah, good point. And and you know, there's not much worse that I can think of as being cold and wet, and that's that's a common thing here in Washington: cold and wet. And so, you know, we talked this morning about, you know, sneakers versus boots, you know, and the benefit. Uh, I, I stood in those three to four inches of, of water this morning cleaning the, the uh, street uh, drains, um, and my feet stayed dry. Um, now, had you done that, you know, with sneakers, you know, you would have been pretty cold and uh, definitely wet. So, you know, little things. Footwear is very important. It's like the right tool for the right job. And uh, there was a major snowstorm in Washington, and um, it was winter of 2012. And I didn't have proper snow snow snowshoes at the time. I had a couple pairs of combat boots and some sneakers, and I would just I'd wear them, but they were getting wet and cold, and I'd have to rotate them. And I realized really fast proper footwear is what lets you be mobile. So if you um, have a good pair of snow boots for snowy situations, good pair of rain boots for the rain that we typically get here, it'll make your life a world a a lot easier. It's just a, it's night and day. I mean, this morning my sneakers were just completely drenched after walking my kid to school. I had to change them out and I, I'm going to go to the store and buy some, uh, some (laughs) rain, rain uh, galoshes, I suppose. (laughs) So, one last thing before we go today, we want to talk about, there's four, four major steps that we want to talk about preparing for an emergency. There's the preparedness phase, which involves having a plan and, and having a kit. Um, two very separate but very distinct things, looking at the time of year. Um, obviously, we can't predict everything that's going to happen, and, and uh, so, you know, thinking in terms of what generally happens and maybe what's highlighted nationally um, 
for us. It's the Cascadia subduction zone, which is due to happen. But, you know, um, I don't anticipate a drought through the winter, you know, but, you know, that could happen. But, you know, it's hard to say that with the weather that we've had recently. Um, but then after you have the preparedness piece, then you've got the ready, set, and go. And what ready is, is just being situationally aware uh, based on weather forecast, alerts from emergency services personnel, uh, alerts from the emergency management department, things of that nature that, that just give you a heads up that something might be coming. And generally these are not put out just because they're scientific or realistic reasons these aren't meant to be scare tactics. These aren't meant to control people. It's, it's meant to truly save and prepare people. So that's your ready phase where you might pull out that kit that you've put together and make sure items are rotated or appropriate for the season we're coming into. Uh, make sure your plan has that out of area contact uh, west or excuse me, east of the Cascade Mountains. Don't go north and south, go east uh, you can go out of state, you can go, you know, but the thing that we found out, and especially again with Ian in Florida, people have emergency contacts that don't know they're the emergency contact. You need to let these people know because in today's world of spam and and calls like the robocalls, a lot of people, if they don't recognize the phone number, don't have that listed in their phone, they're going to just hang out. And so make sure that you have an emergency contact out of the area. They know your their contact, and they have the phone numbers and names of the people that they can anticipate receiving a text or a phone call from in the event of an emergency. Then we go to set. And what set is, is for some people, that's go. If you have mobility issues, if you have large vehicles, if you have a lot of animals or people that you're going to need to move or things of that neighbor, nature. Set might be your go, but set for most of us is going to be, okay, this is getting real. This is something that we better be prepared for. Um, and uh, we may hear go, which is get out. Um, and uh, nobody has to get out, but that's your choice. And whether emergency response personnel can get back to you immediately if you choose to not heed the go warning that's that's on you so uh, with that um, i just want to say thank you for for being here today joseph i appreciate our time together and how we are able to help people uh, maybe better prepare thanks for having me on the show larry and look forward to chatting with you more about uh, a little bit of history of disasters and how we can prepare for them uh, currently and in the future all right, everybody. Well, thank you and uh, stay safe out there. And we look forward to talking to you next.